You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. joining us. Uh, this message feels to me, and maybe I'm wrong, feels to me like one of the most important things I'll ever preach. Uh, I think it's because it combines so many themes that are important to me. Some of the, I find like every two to three years, God uh, puts a new theological study on my mind that I then dive deep into trying to understand. And this message Brings them all together in a way that I don't think is often um, seen in um, churches. In fact, uh, some pieces of these you'll only ever hear from Bible scholars. Uh, Pastors don't usually get into it, and a lot of times pastors are unaware of it, and so churches a lot of times uh, are unaware of it. So I understand some of this I might be saying super fast or point blank, and if it ever becomes confusing for that reason, let me know. But one of the ways that I wanted to help you um, is I've written a little book, and this is literally what I'm about to read to you. It's called Supernatural Justice. See, it's not very long before you're all like, holy crap, he's going to read a whole book to us. Um, And I'm not going to mention all the Bible verses while I'm talking. Some of them are going to show up on the PowerPoint, but... Um, they're all in here. And you can all have the PDF for free. I only have this singular copy uh, of a physical copy. Um, but if you want the PDF, there's going to be a QR code that we'll put on the door on the way out. You can scan it, download it, and then you can re-look through everything that I'm saying to be like, oh, okay, so here it is in the Bible that he was talking about. He's maybe not making things up, possibly. Who knows? Um so that's, that's all just a heads up. Now, one of the things I'm going to do that I hate doing and never do is I wanted to be sure that I worded it as specifically as possible. So I'm literally going to read to you exactly what I wrote in this. And I prefer free preaching where I just have bullets and I can kind of go off the cuff here. But this one felt important to me to make sure that I was scripting it ahead of time. So that's, that's what I'm going to do here. Um, that being said, one of my side jobs is narrating audiobooks, so maybe it will still be lively. Um, I won't do all the voices and stuff because there's no voices in this book. <laughs> mm. I do quote Isaiah at one point, so maybe I'll think of what Isaiah would sound like. All right. So let's go ahead and hop in here. Uh, we have four parts we're going to get through, and the first part is the sons of God and the kingdom of Babel. A supernatural world of the Bible is overflowing with spiritual beings of varied authority, job descriptions, and backgrounds. At the top of this hierarchy is Yahweh himself, who is the Lord of lords, the God of gods, and the King of kings. He is the creator of heaven and earth and everything that exists. Now, underneath him are the little G gods that he created, often known in Hebrew as the Bene Elohim. Now, the Bene Elohim, if we were to translate that into English, it would be sons of God. Now, while this term is a bit flexible and can be used to describe literally any spiritual being of Yahweh's heavenly family, we use it here in reference to the gods, the little G gods, 
that Yahweh appointed to rule over the nations of the earth. This was not the original scenario that God set up in the Garden of Eden, but instead is a consequence of humanity's disobedience at the Tower of Babel. Since humanity refused to listen to God, once again, Yahweh created a new paradigm and assigned his heavenly sons to guide the various nations that he had divvied up by language. In the meantime, he decided to just focus on growing his own nation out of a man named Abraham. This is one of your key verses. You're going to want to look it up. Deuteronomy 32, 8. This is where God divvies up the world and assigns a bunch of them to spiritual beings. Now, if the gods had done their job rightly, they would have shown the humans assigned to them what Yahweh is like. But Yahweh doesn't always trust his heavenly family, and his sons are a great example of why that is. Psalm 82 tells us that these gods use their newly delegated power and authority to oppress their nations. Instead of making righteous judgments over the lives of their humans, they sided with the wicked and let them get away with injustice. Instead of rescuing the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed of their nations, they overlooked them and allowed injustice to continue. Moreover, they turned against Yahweh completely, using their delegated power to combat him. As seen when the spiritual princes reigning over Persia and Greece try to stop Yahweh's attempts to minister to Daniel in Daniel 10. So it's no wonder that Paul had to remind the church, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The cosmos is a mess. The gods have their claws in everything, and we experience their unified chaos daily. They are a part of why the poor get poorer while the rich get richer. They are a part of why we see injustice intersecting with every component of life. They are a part of why certain people face so much oppression. They are a part of why we have systems that keep the marginalized stuck. They are the false gods that we turn to for false wisdom. They're the divine beings offering us a chance to eat from a different tree. They invite us to go along with the status quo, telling us that injustice isn't really all that bad. All humans have felt their sting in some way. We're born under their reign, and we know what their leadership feels like. Being gods, they carry out their authority from the top of society. That is all the more reason that uh, back in the day there was no separation between state and religion. Rather, state was religion. Indeed, the highest politicians were often considered to be gods, and much mythology was built around their reign and their personhood. From their perspective, the gods reigned through kings, through emperors and pharaohs, which is a view that John saw as reality in Revelation. In his magnificent apocalypse, John reveals to us the the national gods in the form of a dragon, a water beast, and a land beast. It's an unholy trinity, if ever there was one. These chaotic, godlike creatures represent all the chaos the earth has to offer, and the three of them play out their chaos throughout the state and religion. These gods are worshipped by humanity, and they symbolize the kings as well. For the kings are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. The gods use these politicians as puppets. 
These are the gods of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is an ancient ziggurat, which served in ancient people's minds as like a bridge to heaven that tried to reach out to the divine beings that lived there. And as a consequence, Yahweh allowed humanity to have the lesser gods. You want to reach out to them, here they are. You can have something less perfect than me. Yahweh's sons are the gods of this age. And so long as they exist, so will the cycle of their control. Therefore, we see Babel appear all throughout history, from Genesis to modern times. The sons of God have centuries worth of tricks to ensure the same exact cycle of injustice and oppression and make sure that it happens with every generation. As I've led people through exorcisms before, I've seen the many tricks of demons. Every time I found a way to overcome their lies in a person, they would think up another way to communicate their lies. They would brainstorm together. One time I found two demons, and one was the master and the other was the protege. Eventually, I had to cast out the master to get rid of the protege that who was just there to learn. Apparently, screw tape letters has more validity to it than we thought. The gods and the demons of Babel are crafty. They are teaching and learning. They are using the same techniques that they've used on others before. They have different fields of expertise and are assigned to individuals with overlapping themes and usually have specific missions that they hope to carry out. And just as we fall prey to demonic thinking in our individual lives and get ourselves wrapped up in sinful lies, thoughts, and actions, so do entire nations fall prey to the gods. From the genocide of Rwanda to Nazi Germany to American lynchings, Sometimes the soul of a nation is swept up in a frenzy, and we don't acknowledge what we've done until it's far too late. It's no wonder that John heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are reaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. We are not living in the world as it should be, and that's on us. After all, our first sin was to listen to a different God in the Garden of Eden, rather than listen to Yahweh. This chaos has only been furthered by the addition of the gods of Babel. While these gods may vary in their identities and their positions and tactics, they're unified in their mission, and they will eat us up if we're not careful. Indeed, the church is not someone who only, uh, the church not only falls for demonic ploys. But we are often at the front line of demonic ploys. For we make the grave mistake of confusing the beast for Jesus himself. John knew that some Christians would do this when he recognized that the land beast tried to masquerade as a lamb, even though it spoke like a dragon. Proponents of Christian nationalism flock to these kinds of beasts thinking that a few sacrifices to it will bring about Christian victory. Meanwhile, the true lamb of Jesus hobbles over to us through a pool of his own blood, inviting us to try a different way. Sure, his way may get us killed, but there's no dragon worship involved. Moreover, Jesus tells us that the victory we've been looking for all along isn't found in reigning over others with the gods, but it's found in the lowliness of this world. It's found in the lowliness of things like martyrdom and serving one another. 
For in Jesus' upside-down, topsy-turvy way of doing things, to die on behalf of Christ at the claws of the gods is actually how we conquer the gods. So we have to relearn everything. The age of the sons of God is a dark age to live in, that's for sure. We are born into their reign, we get tangled up in their culture, and we fall prey to their political leaders whenever they decide to copy the false gods in their thinking. Everything feels out of control, and so we try to, we try to put up with their injustice, feeling hopeless to make any real change to the system. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and we gather that the only way we're ever going to get anywhere is either by joining the beasts or trying to overthrow them with beast-like tactics, effectively replacing the beast with another beast and reinvigorating the reign of the gods. If we are to come out of Babel, if we are to break free of the grip of the sons of God, if we are to impact society in a Christ-centered kind of way, then we can neither go along with the flow of everyday life, nor can we find a muddled middle. We have to go a different direction entirely. This brings us to part two, the prophets and the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the Bible, we catch glimpses of Yahweh calling his heavenly family together to meet with him. In such meetings, Yahweh's family members might report on the affairs of earth that they've witnessed. Sometimes they might help Yahweh arrange earthly judgments. And uh, sometimes they themselves experience judgment for their own actions. Now, occasionally in Scripture, humans would find themselves in one of these divine council meetings. Take Isaiah, for example, who's caught up in a powerful vision of Yahweh's throne room. There he sees Yahweh on his throne, protected by his seraphim bodyguards. Yahweh had called his court into session because he was eager to deliver a message to Israel, which sounds super odd to us because Yahweh's heavenly family is filled with messengers who could have done this. So what's Isaiah doing there? On top of that, as Ken said earlier, the Hebrew word uh, for messenger is malach. And when we use that word, just referring to a human messenger, we translate it very simply as a messenger. A human malach is just a messenger. But when we translate it into English, the same exact word, if it's a heavenly malach, we call them an angel. Angels are messengers. So Yahweh looks at his throne room that Isaiah, this human person, has been called into. He says, whom shall I send? Who's going to go for us? And I feel like this would actually be quite funny for Isaiah to watch because he's got to be looking around the room thinking, oh, which angel's going to take this job? Which messenger is on this one? When he probably stops and realizes, wait, why am I here? <laughs> And in that moment, he realizes, oh, he's, all the angels have probably been told to wait. Wait until Isaiah says, I'll do it. And so Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. There's my voiceover for Amity right there. You're welcome. <laughs> so Yahweh accepts this proposal and commissions, commissions him as the Malach, as the messenger, as the angel, who's going to carry this message to humanity. So in this light... Isaiah has just become angelic, even though he's a human. 
He went into the realm of the angels. He received a message from God like the angels do, and he was sent back to earth. Therefore, it's unsurprising that the word malak can be used and applied to different humans that Yahweh entrusted. And we see that happen in at least three passages. Now, such humans are Yahweh's appointed angelic-like messengers, or what we call in English, we refer to this kind of of person as a, a prophet. These prophets have been taken up into Yahweh's throne room to hear his declarations, and they have been coming back to earth to share them with us. They are Yahweh's messages wrapped up in earthly skin. They are, as Hosea calls them, the people of the Spirit. But as these Holy Spirit-infused women and men return to earth with heaven's messages, they're met with a most upsetting response. People rarely want to listen to them. And not only that, but people often oppress the prophets for their messages. And it's the same messages that the Holy Spirit has stirred up in them. They shunned Yahweh's human malach, and they put them in the stocks. And they even killed them. Though we consider the prophets to be holy people of great renown, they are never treated that way. Their messages and works become famous later. But few people in their own generation or hometown ever listen to them. Jeremiah, the most emotive prophet in the Bible, gives us a glimpse of what it felt like to serve as an ambassador of Yahweh. Curse be the day on which I was born. <laughs> the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Curse be the man who brought the news to my father, a son who's born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? This is what prophets feel like. Now, how many worship songs do we sing? How many prayers do we pray where we beg Yahweh to speak to us, telling him we'll listen? Because the Bible is historical proof that that has rarely ever been the case. And it's convincing evidence that it will rarely ever be the case this side of the resurrection. While the prophets have plenty to say, the truth is that the world doesn't want to hear it. And Yahweh's people, Israel or the church, are no different. Nobody wants to hear the prophets because they've entered Yahweh's kingdom of heaven and returned with a critique of God's kingdom of Babel. Such a message is especially annoying to the rich and powerful because Babel has benefited them quite well and they don't desire an alternative way of doing things. Indeed, they assume that it must be going so well for them because they have divine favor. So what are these human messengers telling them otherwise? They're probably just poor, bitter people who life hasn't worked out so well for. But the prophets can't stop prophesying. The message of Yahweh overwhelms their hearts like a fire in their bones. They have to speak. They must speak. If they don't speak, they're going to explode. And so out of their mouths pour the convictions of heaven, which come flowing out in the form of judgment. Justice is at the heart of Yahweh's words, for the world was built for justice. And Yahweh feels passionate about injustice. He doesn't just talk about, oh, that's really bad, you shouldn't have done that. 
He feels for it. Cain, you probably shouldn't have killed Abel. Cain, why is Abel's blood calling from the ground? As he sees the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, he cries out on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. If injustice should not be found in the gods, then it should not be found in humans either. In the same way that the gods use their power to oppress humans, humans with greater status use their power to oppress other humans, even though they're all made in the same image of Yahweh. The sons of God were not supposed to do this. Humans were not supposed to do this. Babel is not allowed to do this. It's a perversion of the kind of kingdom that Yahweh desired to bring to earth. Now, Yahweh is patient, but we have to change our ways quickly or face the consequences. This dynamic put the prophet in a bit of a catch-22, because on one hand, their job is to come and convince you not to do something or face the consequence, but a successful prophet looks like a false prophet because they actually convinced you not to do that thing, and so the consequence never came. And so often, people might look at a successful prophet and say, was that ever going to happen in the first place? But the prophets know what they've heard, whether people believe them or not. And even if they somehow hadn't heard Yahweh correctly, their message of justice would be no less a prophetic message. Because Yahweh's concern for the poor never changes. Whether he specifically anointed someone to say it or not. So in the same way that you can't be wrong when you proclaim Yahweh's love to someone, you can't be wrong when you proclaim justice. For these themes belong together, love and justice. And so the prophets try to serve as a bridge between heaven and Babel with the hope of overriding the ways of Babel with the ways of heaven. They try to work over their society in every conceivable way. They proclaim their messages. They write poetry and fiction. They put on performances. They become living parables. They call out the rich and defend the poor. And they participate in politics, reporting their heavenly messages to kings who are supposed to listen, but are often not open to the critique. Bad kings especially didn't want to hear the prophets and instead surrounded themselves with yes-men who were in the guise of prophets. So, for example, King Ahab wanted to go to war, and he inquired of 400 of his own prophets if he should do it, and they all told him exactly what he wanted to hear. Ahab was then pressed to ask an actual prophet of the Lord, which he didn't want to do. Why? Because the only prophet he knew, he had this to say about him. I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. The prophets are clearly not in this line of work to be popular. For there is no such perk. If you want someone to tell you what you wanted to hear, there were hundreds of false prophets that you could ask. But if you wanted someone to actually check in with heaven on your behalf, you could ask one of the real prophets. But a heavenly response could cause a prophet to face jail time or death. For Babel, its gods and its kings have little space for truth-tellers, Yahweh's messengers, or heaven's politics. The earthly messengers of heaven were more likely considered infamous than famous, because they were known to poke the beast. 
There are all kinds of labels society then and now would have slapped on them in attempts to silence them. They were woke for believing in the stories of the marginalized. They were instigators for telling society that the lives of minorities matter. They were rebels for not just going with the flow of majority. They were liberals for wanting politicians to help the poor. They were progressives for believing that society had to change because the status quo was not good enough. They were communists for believing that humans should share and care for one another. They were bad people for they were imprisoned and killed for their words. And that only happens to bad people, not prophets. Right? History tells us otherwise. Brings us to part three, three a, a very special Malach. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh sent both heavenly Malach and earthly Malach to address humanity. But they never woke up from their dreams of Babel and the ways of the sons of God. Instead, their unrepentant, hardened hearts were turned over to increased evil until Yahweh had no choice but to bring about the very consequences that he had warned them about through the many prophets that he had sent. Now that the prophet's words had come true, they became the good guys we should have listened to. But it's too late. Since Israel did not care for the poor and the marginalized, they learned the lesson by becoming poor and marginalized, as a fullness of Babel swallowed them up in a kingdom fiddling known as Babylon. Their own kingdom of Jerusalem had been mirroring this kind of society for a long time. But now, they had no control of it from the top. They were at the bottom. They were freed from the Babel of Egypt. They became a Babel themselves. And now they were turned over to the Babel of Babylon. And they needed a savior. So Yahweh commissioned a new kind of messenger. And it's one that no one saw coming ahead of time. Amongst God's heavenly family was a very specific son of God. He served as a very special angel. He carried the title of the Malach of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord. Now, this angel appears many times throughout the Old Testament, but there's something very different about this angel. He doesn't just pass along messages but, from Yahweh, but he talks to people as though he is Yahweh. He talks to Moses from out of the burning bush. And Yahweh explains to Moses that his name, Yahweh, is in him. It's in the angel. Now, both Gideon and Samson's parents saw the angel of Yahweh, and they thought they were going to die because that's what happens when you see the face of God. But they didn't have to worry about this because the angel of Yahweh was a form of God that could be seen face to face without dying. Indeed, this angel used to travel inside of a pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. And occasionally, that pillar would stop in front of the tabernacle so the angel could descend it and speak to Moses face to face as God. Now, it's clear from these stories and more that the Hebrew authors are trying to blur the lines between Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh. Are they the same person or are they separate entities? And the mysterious answer known to all Trinitarian Christians is, yeah. With this in mind, we now have a character to make sense of all the other times Yahweh meets up with humans in physical form throughout the Old Testament. He strolls by Abraham, and Abraham recognizes him. 
He wrestles with Jacob in the form of a man, which Hosea later says that man was both God and angel. Joshua even goes so far as to worship this angel God-man. So, yeah, it's weird. But also, for Christians, it's not that weird at all. We already believe that Yahweh is three in one and that Jesus has always existed and created the world with Yahweh. Jesus himself even recognized his presence in the Old Testament when he's talking to a crowd in the Gospel of John and he says that he spoke to Abraham back in the day. This actually makes a lot of sense in John's Gospel because John believed Jesus was God's word made flesh. And it was God's word, actually, that appeared to Abraham in a vision back in Genesis 15. Now, you add to all this the fact that the angel of Yahweh, who's a core character throughout the Old Testament, is mysteriously missing in the New Testament. But we can draw some lines that compare Jesus to Yahweh's famous messenger. For example, Jesus has, he reveals his identity as an angelic-like being when he's transfigured in front of them. At that moment, his face shined like the sun and his clothes glowed a brilliant angelic white. Both of these characteristics were known in ancient times to belong to divine beings or angelic beings. Furthermore, God sent his angel to speak to John in Revelation, but guess who showed up? It's Jesus. I think John's trying to say, yeah, God's angel. Now, all this being said, Jesus was not just the Son of God of the sons of God. He was not just the angel of angels, but Jesus also became the son of man of the sons of men. He is at the top of all hierarchies. He is Yahweh himself in another form. There is nothing above him or outside of his grasp. The entire cosmos may be out of whack due to decisions of earthly and heavenly beings, but none of it is beyond Jesus. Paul gives us some insight to this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The heavenly and earthly realms experienced a surprising disruption, for the angelic Malach of Yahweh put on flesh and came to earth in the form of a human Malach. He is the prophet of prophets, the greatest messenger of both worlds. Will the earth hear his message now? Will Yahweh's people finally listen and respond to him, especially now that the former prophets no longer look false in light of Israel's consequences? So Yahweh in flesh lives out his prophetic message about the poor, oppressed, and marginalized quite loudly. He is born to a couple that's going to be ostracized and judged by their family and friends because who's ever going to believe in a virgin birth if you know them? He was birthed into a feeding trough because no one was willing to make a sacrifice to create a better arrangement for a pregnant mother. 
His life was soon threatened with abortion, so he became a political refugee to survive. He was demonized by his audience. People used racist slurs on him. And he was thought to be insane, even by his own family. With his own ministry, he made himself an outcast. For he spent his ministry with outcasts, causing others to slander him as a glutton, a drunkard, a robber, and a sinner. And it's not hard to imagine that he was also slandered by, for his many interactions with women that went against the cultural norms. He was rejected by his hometown so intensely that they tried to kill him. Other cities rejected him as well, causing him to have to search elsewhere for places to stay. And it might have been that very kind of rejection that caused him to experience homelessness from time to time. And while we know he had financial donors, his teaching, ministry, expectations, and life situations cause us to wonder if he was not either impoverished or actively chose poverty. Perhaps his ministry was even mocked and discredited when it was discovered that his treasurer, Judas, had been embezzling their funds. But it wasn't Judas who was shady. Or sorry, it was Judas who was shady. But it was Judas who was shady, not Jesus' ministry. Jesus provided free health care to the sick everywhere he went, even when he had to sacrifice his own mental health to do so. He offered free exorcisms for people who suffered from all kinds of mental and physical disabilities, which is a ministry that often requires quite a bit of inner healing and counseling and therapy to be offered alongside of it. He provided free food to thousands of hungry people. He spent time with the children that society belittled and sternly warned those who oppressed kids. He wrote stories like the Samaritan where minorities were the stars. And like a slave, he willingly washed the feet of others. It wasn't Jesus' ministry that was oppressive, but the ministry of the local religious leaders. Their positions in society fueled them with pride, putting their focus completely on themselves. Even if it hurt or demeaned others. Their ministries threatened to kill sinners. They destroyed the lives of widows. And they robbed people. And Jesus was so caught up with emotion that he flipped tables and chairs in a temple and constructed a whip to drive out the money changers. Though he was the chief divine being of all divine beings, Jesus was willing to become a lowly outcast to associate with outcasts. His life and ministry underwent great scrutiny as he put on the same kind of oppressed skin that the poor wore. All of this social justice work could be connected straight to his passage from Isaiah, which Jesus fulfilled at the start of his ministry. This is a song we sang earlier. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in that synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why is the Holy Spirit on Jesus? What has his messenger been anointed to proclaim? It's good news. To who? The poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Now, the good news of modern evangelicals is singular. Jesus came to save us from our sins. But from a biblical perspective, that's just one thing Jesus came to do. There is much more good news to be proclaimed and enacted, including ministry to the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. This passage in Isaiah is Jesus' original mission statement, and the forgiveness of sins does not suddenly make the rest of his good news non-existent or unimportant. Indeed, the forgiveness of sins may very well be incorporated into Isaiah's proclamation, since the year of the Lord's favor is often believed to be a reference to the year of Jubilee. That was a special holiday where all debts were forgiven, and society was reset, giving the poor a chance to start over and get back on top again with a more fruitful and abundant life. But the modern evangelical has a very different way of thinking about things. For them, the life to come in the next age is all that matters. All we need to do now is get people saved so that they're in good shape for eternity. The quality of someone's life here and now is transitionary and unimportant, unless, of course, it affects us. But this is not the kind of way that Jesus thought or acted. This is not the kind of thinking that the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus with. This is not the message of the malach of the cosmos, either side of the veil. The angel of the Lord put on skin to care for people with skin. And his skin-like actions provoked the religious and political world so much that they killed him for it. Jesus knew his death was coming for some time. He had, he had come for his own and was rejected by them at every turn. As it ended up, nothing changed. Isaiah might be accepted as a prophet in Jesus' generation, but despite the amazing supernatural things that Jesus did, Jesus would not be heeded. Instead of celebrating what Yahweh was doing through him via the power of the Holy Spirit, people went the opposite way. Once he raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders decided Jesus' power was too great, and they decided to kill him in response. Jesus would now have to experience oppression in another way, as he snuck around to stay alive. In time, one of his closest disciples would betray him with a kiss, possibly adding trauma to any coming kiss down the road as his human body kept the score. Once captured, he would be put in jail and abused by angry religious men who blindfolded him, slapped him, and mocked him. Society would then turn on him in a mob-like fashion and have him abused and whipped and turned over for capital punishment. Jesus, the messenger of Yahweh, the prophet of prophets, the only innocent being ever to walk the heavens or the earth, now bleeding out on the electric chair as people laughed and mocked him even though he never did anything wrong. In their racism, the Romans crucified just another Jew. He was abused and lynched on a tree, his quivering nude body hanging there for all to see as they sexually harassed him. In the name of Babel, the religious leaders have taken violent means to bring an end to a man who threatened the world as they knew it. They were determined to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth their own way. And Jesus was an obstacle preventing them from doing so.
So like every true prophet, Jesus died at the religious capital of Jerusalem, for God's people do not like Yahweh's messengers, even if that messenger is Yahweh himself. But Jesus' favorite message of the kingdom of heaven would not die with him. For he was resurrected out of the underworld into a new immortal body that behaved in both human and angelic ways. The Son of Man and the Son of God was merged into one new kind of being. And his new body entered into the kingdom of heaven with the promise that he and his heavenly family would one day return and bring heaven fully to the earth. In the meantime, his followers were to keep busy by building his kingdom in the here and now. Now one day, we're all going to find ourselves in Isaiah's shoes, caught up before Yahweh's throne, surrounded by his heavenly family and the divine council already in session. But this time, it's going to be Jesus sitting on the throne, surrounded by the angels. And at that moment, he will separate all humanity around a distinction that is very important to him. Did we take care of the poor? If the answer is yes, we will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. For by doing so, we not only believed the gospel, but lived the gospel out and took care of Jesus himself. But if the answer is no, then a very different future awaits us. In the very psalm that Yahweh charged the sons of God with corruption, he prophesied this consequence. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is an unusual consequence because gods are immortal beings. They're not designed to die. They can't die. But Yahweh has created a way to change that through a coming lake of fire called hell, in which things go to perish, as John 3.16 says. This fire was specifically designed, according to Matthew, for immortal beings like Satan and his angels. So, of course, mortal beings like humans would perish there too. Now, Yahweh's ultimate hope is the same that it's always been, to bring about the kingdom of heaven on the earth. In the resurrection age to come, heaven and earth will intersect and intertwine into one inseparable unit. At that time, the powers of heaven will be shaken and face judgment. The earth, though, will be shaken too. And only the things related to the kingdom of heaven will stay on the earth while everything else will perish in hell. We don't get a free pass where the gods did not. The gods didn't take care of the poor. They didn't image God to them. So they were given an end date. And the same can be true for us. Now, a lot of people would consider this a heretical works-based gospel, not a faith-based gospel. But this kind of works-based messaging is seen all throughout the Old and New Testament, perhaps most strongly in the many statements of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Faith, as it turns out, cannot be described solely as belief, because belief does not naturally care for the poor. Now, Bible scholar Matthew Bates has found that pistis, the Greek word for faith, has a myriad of myriad of implications. It's not just believing. Pistis means more than that. It means reliability, confidence, assurance, fidelity, faithfulness, commitment, and pledged loyalty. And with this in mind, the English word faith 
just doesn't do a good job of covering all of those definitions. Bates proposes that we translate it as a different word instead. Not faith, but allegiance. This word's better because allegiance requires action, which matches the teachings of the New Testament. No longer can we simply claim that we're on a certain side. We actually have to prove it with our lives and our actions. And it just so happens that taking care of the poor is a great way of showing that you haven't sided with Babel. Because nothing could be more anti-Babel than that. Nothing could be more in line with the prophets. No actions are more required by Yahweh than that we do justice, that we love kindness, that we walk kindly with him. That's Micah. James said that the religion of Yahweh is found in visiting orphans and caring for widows in their affliction and staying unstained by the world. When we don't do these kinds of things for the poor, oppressed, and marginalized, we're stained by Babel. Babel's filled with demons in their ways. The, the kings have taken their power from her, and the merchants have taken their riches from her. Her economy is loaded with her, her shops, and they're filled with all you can imagine. And the fuel that keeps her, her economy going is the same fuel as Egypt. Or as John says, it's, it's slaves, it's human souls. To Babel, people are commodities and workhorses that the rich profit off of. And if the prophet tries to challenge this way of life, they are killed, filling Babel with the blood of the prophets, according to Revelation. The sons of God do not want attention drawn to their ways. They want to extend their nightmare. So they've got to ensure that the dreamers never wake up. Now, Legion Christians make it hard for the gods, for they have fulfilled Moses' hopes and dreams that the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. This was not the paradigm of Moses' world, but it is the post-Pentecost paradigm of Christians, in which all of Yahweh's followers have been imbued with the Holy Spirit and equipped for ministry. Moses didn't have that, and he wanted it. Jesus gave that to Christians. We may not all be called to church leadership position of a prophet, but we all have the same spirit in us that empowered the prophets. Therefore, there is always a possibility that we might prophesy, especially as we earnestly desire the greater gift, as Paul tells us. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit wants to grow fruit in us that causes us to live the kingdom of heaven out, that we would be the kingdom of heaven people that we are. As we yield ourselves to her, the Holy Spirit will help us harvest the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we live out these characteristics, the world sees the resurrection age to come blossoming inside of us. They're not used to such qualities because these kinds of characteristics do not typically help people move forward in Babel. We are prophetically showing them a different way that cares for people, that loves for people. By the power of the Spirit, we are no longer staying conformed to this world. But as we renew our minds, we begin to metamorphose into a Christ-like version of ourselves, causing Babel to crumble inside of us until it no longer has a grip. We live prophecy. We breathe prophecy. And it's no wonder that Babel wants to martyr us for it. The allegiant Christian is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and an ambassador of Christ, and the gods do not care for dual citizenship. Allegiant Christians are a threat to their kingdom, for they have the ability to dismantle Babel in every facet. Christians are a force to be reckoned with because even killing them negatively affects Babel. 
which they learned firsthand when they killed Jesus. Paul mocks the gods as he reflects on this truth, saying, We do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. How can Satan and the gods and their demons end up, uh, how can they end the prophetic work of Christians when they're up against the Holy Spirit's secret wisdom in each one of them? How can they stop Christians from dismantling Babel when even killing them dismantles Babel? The gods of Babel don't know what to do about this, so they default to violence because that's all they know how to do. Faith-filled Christians do not always offer the same threat to Babel that allegiant Christians do. Indeed, faith-filled Christians might even benefit Babel from time to time, since there are countless ways you can manipulate people for your own cause when they simply believe in something but don't feel the need to live it out. A Christian who truly believes Jesus is real but does not feel the need to flee from Babel or the ideologies of the gods becomes an asset to Babel. For in their unwillingness to prophetically provoke people toward justice, they convince other Christians to try bathing in the lukewarm babbles, lukewarm waters of Babel. It's not really that bad, is it? But Yahweh will spit them out. They bear his name, and to live or act counter to his name is what it means to take his name in vain. To try to marry Babel and heaven together into mediocre living is blasphemy. Jesus and the beast do not walk hand in hand. His bride is the church, and she is a force to be reckoned with, for heaven and resurrection live inside her bones. She doesn't need to settle, and she never has. And if all Christians imagine a world as bold as the prophets did, heaven would be closer to our doorstep. To bring about the kingdom of heaven, we must do it the Jesus way, and that feels foreign to us. In the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached, Jesus gave us a glimpse of what heaven looks like when it's lived out on earth. Heavenly people are poor in spirit. They mourn. They're meek. They're, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful and pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They're persecuted for being righteous. They're reviled and slandered like the prophets before them. They're the light of the world. They're recognized for their good works. They're not violent or murderous, but quick to make amends with others. They avoid lust not just in their actions, but in their minds as well. They practice faithfulness and hold to their words so tightly that they don't even need to make vows. They practice pacifism instead of escaping violent situations. When people demean them, they serve them kindly. They love their enemies and pray for their persecutors. They give without acknowledgement of praise. They, they don't try to move their way up in religion or attract attention to themselves by acting extra holy. They ask for Yahweh's kingdom to come to earth as they live out his will. They forgive their debtors. They flee from temptation. They're not focused on the riches of this world, but make disadvantageous decisions in this age, knowing such ages will be rewarded, such decisions will be rewarded in the coming age.
Light spills out of them. They don't serve money. They learn to be content when life is hard, trusting God for provision instead of going into an anxious spiral. They don't judge others, but after they become self-aware of their own problems, they go in humility to help others with theirs. They walk in faith. They do for others what they wish others would do for them. They take the hard path, not the easy one. They're able to discern false prophets from real ones. They walk not only in the power of the Spirit, but also in righteousness, recognizing that if they embrace the Holy Spirit's spiritual power and lawlessness at the same time, they are back on Babel's grounds and will be rejected from heaven. When we practice these politics of the Sermon on the Mount, these politics of heaven, these politics of Jesus, we build the kingdom of heaven upon the foundation of Jesus. This is a completely different way of doing politics than most evangelicals do it. For many Christians desire to bring about morality of the kingdom of heaven by implementing the tactics of the beast. We don't live out the beatitudes of Jesus, but the viciousness of Babel. We we don't address the poor at the bottom of society, but in violence and hate, we try to overthrow things from the top and work our way down. We think that a Christian president is our messianic answer, but we already have a Messiah. We already have a prophet a king, and a god, and his name is Jesus. He is not more of a king or more of a god based on who's sitting on the various thrones of earth. His throne is higher than any divine or human principality. He will not one day be higher than these other authorities. He is already higher than them and always has been. Now, there are countless political dynamics worldwide. And Christians in every one of those dynamics have the same question to address. How do I bring about the kingdom of heaven in my part of the world in the most prophetic Jesus way? This is the question at stake regardless of what our political model is or who has taken up residency in the White House. All humans and heavenly beings are made in the image of Yahweh. So there's always a chance that the powers of this world will do things here and there that echo Yahweh's will. When such moments come, we can join them in those efforts, recognizing that good is broken through. Justice, after all, is what God instituted such powers to carry out. So we should hope and even expect that such moments will come while wisely advocating for such moments when they don't. But God forbid that we see a political leader do something right and suddenly fall into complete dedication to them. God forbid that Yahweh get imaged correctly in one political space, and suddenly we think that Babel's no more. Her systems run so deep that even Jesus recognized that the poor will always be with us. America is no less Babel simply because they change a few laws here and there. There will always be injustice for Christians to be prophetic about. So we have to rise up in allegiance to heaven And do our due diligence wherever possible. Prophetic justice is a rambunctious work and naturally annoying to our babble-soaked ears. If we want to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, we have to put down our walls and listen. Because nothing makes us more defensive than prophecy. When a poor, oppressed, or marginalized person tries to explain how they've treated those of us who haven't experienced the same thing, our default is to justify ourselves and explain how their perspective is wrong. 
But what if the Spirit wants to speak to us out of the voice of the poor, oppressed, and marginalized? What if we should listen to the voice of those that Yahweh has been telling us to serve? What if we were willing to be provoked and convicted by the people around us? Perhaps then our hearts could be motivated into acts of justice. And I don't just mean the kind of justice that preaches nothing more than forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness is often more about our personal inner healing than about our oppressors. Because oftentimes your oppressors don't care that they've hurt you. And while grace is the way in which we carry out Jesus-centered justice, that doesn't mean our oppressors escape all their consequences. Grace might mean that they have to do 10 years in prison instead of 15. Grace looks different in every situation, but it's also a matter of our hearts. Because if we can look at someone with grace, then we can see the image of God in them and hopefully treat them without vengeance or hatred. If we practice grace, then hopefully we can love our enemies, even if they have consequences to face. Hopefully, we choose the kind of consequence that redeems and restores them, not the one that gets, them, gets back at them for how they've hurt us. Grace and forgiveness are important for the carriers of justice, but when practiced alone, they become the absence of justice. Such kindness may turn around the lives of some, and we can celebrate those moments, but deeply hardened and unrepentant people will use grace to continue their injustice to even greater extents. Since Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, we have to turn to the Holy Spirit and ask her for guidance on each scenario we encounter. God loves and wants justice, and he will teach us what proper morality and prophetic provocation looks like in each case. And as it ends up, justice is a major issue for Christians. God has been speaking about it for a long time. He's gone to unusual, miraculous lengths to ensure we receive the message. It is crucial enough of an issue that if we don't practice it, we should expect Jesus to bring it up on the day of judgment. There's a lot about Jesus and the prophets that we have to openly ignore if we're going to do Christianity without justice. We may carry the name and belief of Jesus, but if we don't care for the poor, we have not carried his good news. For what is good news to the poor if it doesn't have some concern for their crumbling lives in the here and now? Jesus believed good news had everything to do with their liberation. Do we? Heavenly allegiance is recognized in our works of justice. The dismantling of Babel is recognized in our concern for the poor. The installation of the kingdom of heaven is recognized in our good works. The gospel is good news that affects society and therefore is a social gospel. The gospel is a work being carried out through the lives of Christians, so works are required. We can't always expect the people of Babel to practice Christian morals since they aren't Christian and don't have the Holy Spirit to empower them to do so. But when they choose to practice morals that oppress another person, we have to come to that poorer person's defense. So may it be found with the heavenly, may we be found with a heavenly kind of busyness on the day of judgment. For if we belong to Babel, we belong to the gods. And if we belong to the gods, then we belong to the fire where immortal beings go to perish. But allegiant Christians will be given new human and angelic-like bodies in the resurrection to live on immortally like the gods once did. They will take on the role of the former divine council, and Paul says they'll judge angels. The Spirit will conform them fully to Christ so that injustice may not be carried out in their lives anymore. 
They'll descend from heaven alongside Jesus to be reappointed to the new world where heaven and earth collide like a sloppy wet kiss and become one. They will be rewarded differently based on how they lived in allegiance to Yahweh in the here and now. There's a reason Christians are called holy ones, children of God, and sons of God, all of which are terms related to God's heavenly family. There's a reason we share Jesus' throne in the resurrection. It's because we are the replacement plan for the gods and the fallen angels of old. We are the new divine council. We are God's heavenly family. As we wrap up this message, uh, we're going to take some time to worship in a unique way. We've asked the Holy Spirit to come and lead this session of worship. I believe he's here somewhere. Um, uh, throughout um, Revelation, there's a lot of cries for justice, especially on behalf of martyred Christians who are like, God, when, when are you going to avenge us? Like, do you care that this happened? And God's answer has always been yes. I care that these things are happening. I'm paying attention that these things happen. Nobody's going to get around the fact that they're committing injustice. One day I will come, and the day of the Lord will come, and on that day people will face judgment for everything that they've done. Nobody gets free. The people of Hades are emptied out before his throne. People who died in the waters are emptied out before his throne. Revelation's just trying to give us the glimpse. Nobody gets free. Christians are emptied out before his throne. Heaven's emptied out before his throne. Everyone's emptied out before his throne for judgment day, in which we then are held account for what we've done. And while we recognize that Jesus' blood covers us, we also recognize that we will be held account nonetheless. And so there's a moment in Revelation where everything goes silent because the day of the Lord is finally here. And it says that the heavens were just silent for half an hour. And that's what we thought might be a good worship time during this time. The heavens where people are crying out, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty on repeat. And that they've been doing it for centuries upon centuries. Finally, silence. Because there's this somber moment. It's a scary moment, but it's also the moment that people have been waiting for. It's a moment where God shows up and says, I see how you were hurt, and I'm here to hold account to that. So for the next uh, 17 minutes, because that's when our, we switch over to the next thing, we're going to give you space to just be silent in the presence of God. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in this time. Um, and he'll lead worship in a lot of different ways in your own life. He might have something to say to you differently. There might be an injustice that he wants to bring to your mind that you have not noticed or accounted for. I think of uh, one pastor who... Um, one day went home, turned on the TV to watch Operation Desert Storm where real people were being shot and killed and televised and he ate pizza and watched it. He didn't even think about it. This was just to him, entertainment and TV. And one day he was in his office when the Holy Spirit just came and just hit him and said, that was the worst sin you ever committed. Something that he hadn't even noticed 
was injustice, he suddenly came to terms with how wrong it was. And God actually used that moment to completely kind of redirect his life and his theology. Let God do that with you right now. What does he want to say to you? Maybe he wants to talk about the injustices that you faced and how much he loves you. I see that all the time. Maybe he wants to bring something to your mind to repent of. Maybe he wants to bring about a relationship to, to amend. Whatever the case may be, this is between you and the Spirit. So take, uh, if I stop talking, you'll have more time to do it. Take uh, 15 minutes here and uh, ask God to speak to you.